Hello there, great to see you again. I'm James Paniki. Welcome back to MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories of the week. In just over 10 minutes time, we'll be blowing out a candle for the 10-year anniversary of the UK Bribery Act. But once the party is over and we've woken up to the cold, hard light of day, we'll ask whether the law's not always impressive enforcement record should be viewed with some concern. Martin Coyle will be joining us for that. First up though, nuclear power. We all know what it is. Many of us have an opinion as to whether it should be considered environmentally friendly or not. So it's a very divisive issue, and not just for outside observers. Scientists also appear to be at odds over whether nuclear should be seen as a green source of energy. But does it matter how we choose to describe it? Well, yes, it does. In the European Union, environmentally friendly sources of energy are earmarked for green loans and green funds. Non-renewable energy, however, is not. The result is a scientific debate that now appears somewhat contaminated by political and national considerations. And to walk us through all of this is our Brussels-based senior financial services correspondent Jack Schickler, who joins me now. Um, Jack, firstly, let's go through the terminology here. Green finance taxonomy. What does that mean exactly? Uh, well, it's a funny word, but it's a kind of centerpiece of an initiative the the EU has had for a while, which is to get financial services to play its part in this this huge task that Brussels is taking very seriously of adapting to and mitigating the impact of of climate change and rising global temperatures. So, uh, you know, they say we need to phase out fossil fuels. Uh, we may also need to change to a world in which there are natural disasters that are a bit more common than they are right now. And someone's got to pay for all this. And while governments are going to do a bit of that, they, they don't have enough money. Um, so you also need stuff like investment funds and uh, banks issuing bonds and other companies issuing bonds uh, to raise the finance. There's quite a lot of interest in what's called the ESG environment, social governance market. But the EU is also a bit worried that some of it is what they call greenwashing, which is basically mis-selling where you say, oh, we've got a green finance fund here. And when you look at it, it's not very green. So they said, let's have a regulation. Brussels answer to everything. Let's have a regulation that says exactly when can you say your fund or your bond or whatever kind of financial product it is, is green. And so they've gone through pretty much every sector of the economy, from energy to agriculture to construction to uh, car making, to say this sector is or isn't green or this is the threshold under which you can claim that the, the activity is green. And so the question in this case is whether green funds should be used to support nuclear power. And that comes down to, I suppose, the question of how environmentally friendly nuclear power is. Have they uh, managed to reach an agreement on this vexed question? Well, nearly. I mean, they were right close to the end of agreeing this regulation. And then two countries, France and the UK, which was at the time in the EU, uh, said, hang on, we have a lot of nuclear power we want to carry on having nuclear power we don't want to it to lose access to all these forms of finance that it could have uh, and at the end of the day nuclear power doesn't emit carbon dioxide um, unlike fossil fuel power so what's the problem with it shouldn't it be allowed to benefit from all this uh, and they kind of did some legislative tweaks which they thought would mean nuclear was okay 
in the end, a bunch of uh, scientists who were advising the commission said, no, we still have our doubts about nuclear because what do you do with the nuclear waste when it's used? Uh, and what do you do about the risk of really big um, Chernobyl-style nuclear incidents, which can obviously cause a lot of damage to the environment and to, to human health as well? Uh, so there is still an ongoing dispute, which is, to be honest, partly scientific, but also partly political, um, as each different country within the EU sort of has its own view about the status of nuclear. And, and that's why this is an important conversation, isn't it? Because it is a process that is meant to be purely scientific, but I suppose in this context, nothing is scientific. I, I remember a very similar debate in Europe when it came to genetically modified foods. I mean, nothing, the science doesn't always prevail in these conversations, right? Definitely not. And particularly when you get into really sensitive political topics like the energy mix of individual countries, um, it's something that they don't really want Brussels getting their hands on. You know, in theory, this is not saying nuclear power has to stop nuclear power and other other activities that aren't necessarily very environmentally friendly will carry on. It's just another form of financing they won't have access to. And so there, there is nothing to suggest that uh, nuclear power in Europe is facing an uncertain uh, future. Uh, it's simply just about the amount of, uh, of finance that it can attract under under these uh, green finance arrangements. Exactly. And if you listen to people like France's finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, he's still going around saying, I'm absolutely committed to making sure nuclear power gets included in this taxonomy, gets treated like an environmentally friendly energy source. If you ask scientists, which is what the European Commission is now doing, uh, ask the old quip goes, ask two scientists for an answer and you'll get three different answers. Uh, and that's pretty much what's happened to the commission. Uh, they have numerous different advisory groups uh, who are basically split about whether, uh, whether nuclear power does meet the criteria. Um, so you have some saying, look, it doesn't emit carbon dioxide and it's basically safe and rare and severe events are fortunately rare. And you have other groups of scientists saying, look, we still don't know how you can bury spent nuclear waste. There are some theories about sort of burying it deep in the ground and so on, but there's not a huge amount of evidence as to whether that will work or whether it will become economically viable. Uh, there's also quite a lot of scientists who dispute, you know, what might the impact be on coastal waters and, uh, you know, what exactly is the impact on human health and, and various other uh, various other impacts. Uh, so now the commission is left possibly in a position it doesn't mind being in, uh, where the scientists are squabbling about what the right answer is. And, uh, you know, it wants to be able to say that it's based all its decisions on science, of course. But it might now be in a position where it says, look, the scientists disagree, so we're just going to have to do whatever answer is politically uh, politically driven rather than uh, based on scientific evidence. Mm. And we should explain for listeners unfamiliar with the machinations of the European uh, Union and the political dynamics that uh, France is pro-nuclear energy, Germany is against it, and those are the kind of the, the fissures in this debate. That is where the gaps are appearing. Indeed, uh, France's huge dependence for its own energy needs on nuclear and has been very pro-nuclear. Um, others, such as uh, Austria and Germany and Spain, are less keen on the idea. And, um, you know, these are some of the biggest countries in 
in the EU, some of the most politically powerful countries within the EU, ultimately they have to agree uh, to whatever the Commission proposes. On top of that, you've got a bunch of other countries who have other problems with the taxonomy, countries like Poland, which is very based on coal uh, and is now arguing it should be allowed to use gas, even though that's a fossil fuel as well, um, although a slightly friendlier one than coal. Um, So you've got a massive political row brewing among the most powerful uh, countries in the EU, and uh, the Commission is probably quite relieved if there's a bit of a scientific dispute that allows them to find the best way forward. Finally, Jack, does any of this matter in the sense that nuclear power will presumably still exist no matter how it's uh, categorised by the European Union? So do we care about any of this? Well, in a sense, indeed, we're not talking about banning finance for nuclear. We're just saying that those people, and it's currently a minority of investors, uh, even if it is growing, but those people who want to invest in green funds or green green financial products um, won't have nuclear. You know, the real problem for the EU is about the credibility of their whole scheme, because certainly when it comes to issues of gas power, which is a kind of related question they are also considering, you know, if you discovered your green investment fund that was marketed with big, uh, you know, lots of pictures of trees and a smiley sunshine um, was actually investing in fossil fuel electricity, that might undermine the credibility of the uh, the EU eco label that had been attached to it. And you might start to ask if any of the rest of the, the badging they've done is is worth it and is really credible. Um, So ultimately, there is a question of credibility of the EU scheme, Uh, you know, other ways of assessing uh, whether something is green are available, um, although they don't have the legal power uh, that Brussels can bring. Um, So, you know, this could pull the rug under the whole green finance carpet if they're if they're not careful. Jack, if anyone in the MLEX uh, taxonomy can guide us through the complexities of EU processes, you are indeed that person. That is how you should be classified. And thank you very much uh, again for your time today. It has been great. Thank you. Jack Schickler is an MLEX senior financial services correspondent based in Brussels. And we'll post a link to his analysis written with the assistance of our energy reporter, Julia Bedini, at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X, marketinsight.com. And if talk of taxonomy gets your heart racing, then MLEX subscribers have an entire portfolio of coverage at the ready. There's plenty of detail on green finance for you to read up on. We have indeed been covering this issue since way back in 2018. Still to come, the UK's bribery legislation faces mixed reviews on its 10th birthday. You're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast on regulatory affairs. My name is James Paniki. I'm MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. And you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. When the UK's Bribery Act came into effect, Adele's 21 was dominating the charts, Prince William was marrying Catherine Middleton, and Silicon Valley was bidding farewell to Steve Jobs. So no shortage of water under the bridge since then. But what has the legislation's impact been on bribery and those engaging in the practice? Martin Coyle is a senior correspondent for MLEX reporting on anti-bribery and corruption from London. 
and he joins me now. So, uh, Martin, tell me something about the background of the Act uh, coming into force. What's the context here? Well, hi, James. So, yes, we're, we're celebrating the um, the 10th anniversary of the, um, the Bribery Act, or, or we just have. So we had the birthday cake and the candles out here at uh, MLEX. But the, um, so the, the background is really that um, there was a feeling sort of 10 years ago or 15 years ago or that the, um, the UK uh, lagged, was lagging behind other big players like the US uh, in tackling foreign bribery. Uh, so the um, OECD uh, Working Group on Bribery was particularly critical of the, the UK uh, and it pointed to the fact that the UK at the time had a sort of hodgepodge of um, anti-bribery uh, legislation um, dating back to, I think, the 1906. So um, basically the OECD attempted to chivy the uh, UK along to, to get its house in order. There hadn't been any significant bribery prosecutions at that time, or, or not many. So um, the Bribery um, Act was an attempt to tackle that and, and, and bring companies to heel. That's the real background to it, James. Now, enforcement of legislation is always key to understanding how effective it is. Tell me something about the enforcement efforts under the Act. Well, if you, if you look purely at the number of Bribery Act convictions as a marker, it, it's not great reading. The first uh, conviction uh, came shortly after the um, Act came into force, and it was for a, a court clerk um, taking money to rip up uh, traffic offences. And, and there have been very few uh, Bribery Act convictions since. Uh, I think there's been less than 100, I, I, I would say. Um, but moving away from that, there have been two corporate convictions uh, under the Section 7 offence, which is the main kind of offence that, that affects companies. And this, this is where the success of the Act has been. So under Section 7, uh, companies can be prosecuted if uh, they fail to prevent bribery taking place on, on their watch. Uh, so we've had two convictions. The first one was um, a, a serious fraud office led case, uh, that of uh, Sweet Group, which was fined uh, 1.4 million pounds in February 2006, and that was to do with um, the payment of bribes in the, um, the Middle East. Uh, and then two years later, we had a the, the, there was a small sort of unusual case against a shop fitting company, uh, Scanson Interiors, uh, which was found, again, under the Section 7 offence of um, failing to prevent bribery. Now, this was the first contested case it kind of slipped under the radar a little bit but um, uh, the company was convicted despite uh, self-reporting uh, issues to the police. There, there was one other uh, attempted prosecution under this section 7 offence uh, that nearly made it to court but uh, it was against a company called Rapid Engineering Supplies uh, based in Oxford, a small company but that case was uh, dropped in um, 2019. Well, given this slightly mixed record as you've just presented it, can we conclude that the Act has been a success? Has it done what it was meant to do? So leaving aside that patchy uh, enforcement record, uh, James, I, I, th I think the bribery hacks had two important effects. So the first is it's encouraged companies, big companies, small companies, uh, to get the houses in order and, and sort out compliance issues and to ensure that they don't get caught out under that Section 7 offence. And that means taking a look at all the uh, areas that they work in and the different countries they work in and, uh, and ensuring that, you know, everything's in place. The second, uh, probably more important impact enforcement-wise, 
the Bribery um, Act kind of paved the way uh, to the UK's DPA regime, so the De- Deferred Prosecution Regime. So that uh, has allowed the Serious Fraud Office to take action uh, against companies uh, under that Section 7 offence and has led to um, that prosecutor being able to uh, reap large fines and fine uh, companies lots of money for, for those types of failures. So it, it, it's been a big money spinner for the, for the uh, UK Treasury and has brought in uh, many hundreds of millions of pounds in fines. So for that reason alone, we could say it's, it's had an important in, uh, effect. All right. So what are the challenges for the UK Bribery Act over the next 10 years? What does the future hold for it? I think it's all about enforcement, James. Um, we've had six DPAs uh, for, for Bribery Act offences since 2014. And we, in fact, it's seven. We've just had another one recently. So I think we're just moving forward. I think we just need to see more uh, we, we need to see more prosecutions, we need to see more DPAs, um, um, potentially we need to see more um, convictions for individuals under the Act. That, that, that's where the real uh, fall-down has been. The um, Serious Fraud Office has managed to take action against big companies, but it hasn't really... Um, it's had a problem in taking action against individuals. So, so going forward, it will be it, the, the real marker of the bribery act and its success will be enforcement. So, there needs to be more enforcement going forward. But there's no sense on the part of the regulators that they need stronger laws at their disposal. There's no, uh, there's no call for a toughening or a tweaking of the act as it now stands. There's been a review of the Act a couple of years ago and um, the conclusion was that that the Act uh, appears to be working well. There haven't been any calls for it to be changed or, or, or for it to be tweaked. I think as we, you know, it, it, we've got a shiny, you know, relatively new uh, legislation. I think it just needs to be tested with more prosecutions and I think companies will be looking forward to that one uh, company who perhaps gets um, taken to court and decides to challenge that Section 7 offence, that hasn't really happened in any any meaningful sense now. If there's an issue with that going forward, then maybe there'll be tweaks. But, but at the moment, I think people seem to be relatively happy with the uh, legislation. Again, it's just down to enforcement and, and, and whether they... Uh, companies can be uh, caught out or the SFO can crack those cases against companies. Martin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, James. Martin Coyle is a senior correspondent with MLEX based in our London offices, and he has written a fine piece of analysis of the Bribery Act's 10-year anniversary, and it's ready for you to read and enjoy. It's titled UK Bribery Act, a qualified success in first decade but fails to net big fish. Nothing like a fishing metaphor for a bribery story just go to mnextmarketinsight.com that's mnextmarketinsight or one word.com and click on the news hub tab now it gives me no joy to have to tell you that today's podcast is about to end but we will be back in your feed next week at the same time for the latest news from mnext's team of reporters around the world I'm James Paniki, and from everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you very much for your company. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now.